Bridges to Bailey, back to Bridges, once more to Bailey, now it's Bridges, here's Bailey, oh my, Bridges, Bailey, Bailey, Bridges, and they scored! Last play of the game, 98 yards to go, and these boys ain't got no more hope than a pig in a parlor. Pitch goes to the right, defense closing in, and he's floating. He's in the air, a human being is taking flight, he's flying to the 50, the end zone, touchdown! The piggies have done it, I turned, I turned, I turned, the piggies win! Oh, sacré bleu, il est fort sans pied, il utilise ses mains, sans pied? Un honte, un disgrace! Oh, what's this? He's thrown it back! This could change the sport! A terrible day for fishing, a great day for the fish! This is Apocalypse Sports Radio, and now your host, Shane Ryan! Hey, happy Wednesday, everybody. Yes, this is Apocalypse Sports Radio. Yes, I'm Shane Ryan, and we have a very, very good show for you here in episode number 11. Uh, We're going to get to it in a minute. We've got Noah Davis, all-around soccer knower, ESPN contributor. He's going to be talking about... The protests in the Bundesliga this past week, which were in solidarity with uh, George Floyd and the protesters in America. We also have Eric Nussbaum, who is a brilliant baseball writer and author, and he's going to boil down the essentials of the MLB uh, labor dispute right now between the owners and the players. And as usual, we have trivia. So that is all coming up. Really quickly, let me just offer a plug for the Apocalypse Sports Network. Uh, It includes two podcasts per week, one like this where we do uh, a couple quick interviews on the topics of the day, as it were, and one that comes later in the week where we sit down and do a sort of feature interview with with a person of interest in the sports world. So far, they've been a lot of journalists, because that's who I know, uh, and I think they've been quite good, and I hope you've been enjoying them. And the Apocalypse Sports Network also includes five blog posts, (laughs) let's try that again, five blog posts each week. Not bog posts. I would never do that. Just sitting there writing about swamps and marshes and things like that. No, sir. Five blog posts each week uh, on a variety of topics, whatever comes to me. It can be fun. It can be serious. It kind of depends how the mood strikes me, but hopefully it is always interesting. So all of that can be yours for the price of $3 a month. So if you like this stuff, uh, please consider subscribing at patreon.com slash apocalypseports. And uh, as I always say, if you don't, well, enjoy the free content, and I'm happy to have you here. All right, let's get to it. We're going to start with Noah Davis. Segment break. Noah Davis is an ESPN contributor, founder of 3.14 Media. Noah, you are back for your second time on Apocalypse Sports Radio. Welcome, my friend. Thank you. Glad to be back so soon. I'm honored. Is your ego just completely out of control right now? It's pretty big. My head is, is blowing up. I have an adjustable size hat, though, so it's okay. Excellent. Um, so, Noah, we're going to talk about uh, German soccer. And uh, this past weekend, uh, there were a bunch of different protests from a few different players. Can you kind of give us the broad outline of what happened in the Bundesliga? Yeah, for sure. Uh, so on Saturday and Sunday and uh, yesterday on Monday as well, uh, a few guys protested. The first one was Wes McKinney, who's a 21-year-old American, plays for Schalke, which is your team, maybe your ex-team now. I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, how yeah that I've, ab- I've abandoned them. Uh, <laughs> That's good. Um, so he wore, he wore an armband with the written message, Justice for George, on it. Um, you know, he it was kind of surprising. I think he is a guy who is known for he's he's very outgoing. He's, he's very charming. He's very funny. Um, has not 
taken much of a political stance at all, uh, as most of the players have not in the past. So I think it was you know interesting to see him. And then um, after that, a couple guys from Dortmund, uh, after they scored, they took off their shirts that had justice for George Floyd written on them as well. And then uh, Marcus Thurum, he took a knee uh, on Sunday after he scored a goal. And then on Monday, Tyler Adams, who's a young American, uh, he had Justice for George and Black Lives Matter written on his cleats. Uh, so, you know, you saw a handful of guys kind of make uh, make these protests known. Um, Weston and Adams are both American, as I said. And then uh, you know, else it kind of you know spread out from there. That's cool. And you mentioned Weston McKinney, not necessarily known as a political guy, very young. Uh, same deal with Adams. Was there any inclination that something like this might be coming? Um, I, I think, no, there wasn't. Um, you know, Adams is a future captain of the United States men's national team, in my opinion. Uh, wow. He is a guy, he's only 22, but he's a guy who is a leader, um, but, but hasn't been outspoken politically. Weston, as I said, is a guy who's, you know, kind of, if you, if you talk to his teammates and stuff, they say he's kind of a goofball. So, um, again, something that, you know, was, was surprising. Uh, I was reading an interview with McKinney, and he said, you know, he, he felt like he had to do something. One of the reasons he thought was that, you know, the Bundesliga is the only league, the only major league playing right now. Um, mm -hmm. So he felt like, you know, there's no better way. There's no better time than now. Um, you know, the ref told him to take it off and he said, I'm not taking it off. And he said, you know, there's a, a rule in the league that you can't make political statements. But I mean, if you really, really look at it, this is a political statement, then I don't know what to tell you. Um, you know, I thought it was kind of an, an interesting statement from him. So oh, that's interesting. I didn't hear that. So he was actually told to take it off, basically said no, and they, they just kind of let him do it. Yeah, and there's some discussion of whether there will be punishments. Um, the two the two guys who took off their jerseys, Sancho and Hakimi, they both got yellow cards because taking right. off your jersey is a yellow card. Um, and then there's discussion of this, as to whether the Bundesliga will penalize them further. Um, I think it's going to be interesting to see if that happens i i feel like they probably will not it seems like a bad position to take and also uh to, to mckinney's point you know uh i think you're going to be on the wrong side of the history if you, if you penalize them yeah and i just read an article uh the headline was fifa calls for common sense as german fa investigates floyd protests and i feel like if even fifa now i'm not claiming to be an expert on fifa i just think of them almost like the ioc just a, a huge corrupt body that uh, like support slavery in in, uh, in Dubai or whatever. But uh, yeah, if they're calling for common sense and basically implying that maybe Germany should just kind of let this one go, it seems like that probably will be the outcome. Am I am I on the mark there or no? I would think so. I mean, I, I don't think that it really matters what FIFA says that, you know, actions always speak louder than words. Um, but I, I don't think that they're going to be penalized for this. No. Gotcha. Now, one thing that was interesting to me reading about this, um, as you said, one of the players was English. There was a Moroccan who did this and then a couple Americans. For the Americans in particular, I almost felt like it would be easier for them to do something like this um, playing overseas than it might be for someone playing in America. Um, do you think that's true? Do you think if MLS comes back this summer, whether in Orlando or whatever other format, that we might see this from them? Or is this kind of like... Uh, being a part almost makes it simpler. Um, I think 
I, I don't know if, if that is it. Um, I think both of those guys feel pretty comfortable with the position on their club. They're both important players and okay. not yeah. that that should matter in, in a vacuum, but uh, in reality it does. Um, you know, I think you've seen a lot of MLS players be pretty vocal on social media. Um, Alejandro Bedoya is a guy who's been very vocal. Uh, Jeremy uh, Obisi, who plays for the Portland Timbers, uh, wrote a great article on Medium that I would encourage everyone to go check out called, uh, the, t- the headline is, it's not meant for your comfort. Um, you know, so I, I think that I don't, I don't think the fact that they're Americans playing in Europe makes too much of a difference. Um, I think it's more just, there was the opportunity to do it. I also think, you know, they're guys from, they're young guys. They're from a a different generation than some of the older players. They might have sort of a different stance on, um, standing out and doing stuff like this and how important it is. Yeah, that makes sense. And let me ask this too, on a similar topic, just, you know, I haven't seen like the MAGA chuds on Twitter go crazy over any of this uh, the way they certainly would if it were the NFL. Um, is soccer, I mean, soccer seems to me like obviously a sport that probably attracts more progressive people in America than something like the NFL or, or even maybe baseball would. Uh, is that, has that been your experience covering it that there's sort of more, <clears throat> I'm not saying they're like, you know, socialists or leftists, but there's more of a leftward bent uh, to the sport than, than football? Um, I think yes and no. I mean, I've certainly seen some terrible behavior at U.S. national team games. Uh, a few years ago, I wrote an article for Fusion about uh, the American outlaws and sort of the horrible, you know, misogyny and, and racism and really? uh, sexism that, yeah, that's happened within that group. And there has been some reforms and, they, and they've done some pretty proactive things. Um, and it's not all of them at, at, by any stretch of the imagination. You know, it's a very small percentage, but I do think there's some pretty horrible, you know, I, the sort of the stereotype of the American soccer fan is like a dude in Brooklyn wearing flannel and square glasses at, at yeah, a bar very early, exactly, you know, exactly, rooting, yeah. rooting for Arsenal five years ago and, and now Tottenham. Um, <laughs> and, and I think there's certainly a lot of that. I mean, I, I do think probably the average American soccer fan is more progressive than the average NFL fan. Um, I don't know, you know, how much that matters in sort of the grand scheme of where all of this is. Um, and I, and there's also certainly some very problematic elements of American soccer fandom. Yeah. See that I didn't realize at all in my head, there was this huge split between what you think of as like the, you know, the hooligans or whatever in England and places like that who are throwing bananas on the field and, you know, all, all the problems they have. And to me, it was like in my head, like you said, the American soccer fan was of a different world, sort of like a hipster, sort of more progressive. I didn't realize there was also, you know, racism among our fans. Uh, yeah, there is for sure. Um, I think there have been some steps to address it and some steps to not. I mean, there was a big article uh, about how NYCFC, their, their, one of their fan supporter groups has like pretty deep ties to the neo-Nazis. Um, no kidding. That's, know, that's, yeah. Wow. Um, so there, there's a lot of that stuff. I, I think probably the reason that they haven't, you know, gotten onto this. It's not, you know, Weston McKinney, if you ask the average American sports fan who Weston McKinney was, they wouldn't know. Right. Yeah. So it's a big, it's a much different kind of level of visibility than if, you know, LeBron or even sort of a minor basketball NBA figure or NFL figure or something like that said it. Um, and, And that might have something to do with 
the, the time difference and being in Europe and just the, the physical distance, um, you know, there might be something there to your point earlier, but um, I think it's more, it's less about the progressiveness of the fan base and more about the size of the fan base. That's interesting. Now, yeah, with somebody like McKinney or Adams, you know, if, if they were an NFL player, you'd expect that the entire league would find a way to blackball them like they did with Kaepernick within a year. Um, I assume that's not the case here, but we'll, are, are they facing any consequences for, for demonstrating like this uh, on behalf of Floyd and the protesters? Will they, do you think, or is this something that will improve their image? Um, I think it will. I mean, I, I hesitate to say improve their image because that sounds it makes it sort of sound a lot more calculating than it is. Um, I do think sure, that they sure. you know, took took a brave stance. And I think that we're in a place now where that brave stance will be uh, appreciated. Um, you know, a couple years ago, Megan Rapino, who's on the women's national team, took a knee uh, right around the Kaepernick protests. Um, and that, you know, she obviously it didn't hurt her stance on the field in terms of getting playing time. But the U.S. Soccer Federation made a rule that you couldn't kneel during the protests. And it was kind of a whole big thing yeah, for I remember that. Yeah. A, a month or two. Um, and. Uh, you know, I mean, I think what that did was that sort of exposed some hypocrisy of the U.S. Soccer Federation um, and kind of made them draw some lines that in retrospect, you know, maybe they wish they hadn't drawn or I certainly I don't think they should have drawn those lines. Um, so I think I think that's that's where you see the issues coming forward. But I, I don't think that in terms of, you know, are, are they going to be are, are McKinney and Adams, you know, is Greg Berhalter, the U.S. national team coach, um, going to bench them or not call them because they did this? No, certainly not. Let me ask you this. So, you know, a lot of these young guys and even some of the guys who might be in their, you know, mid 20s or early 30s or whatever. Um, my perception of most young athletes who are playing at this high level in any sport. And I, you know, I've worked with basketball guys. I've certainly worked with golfers is that most of them are hyper-focused on sports. They're not necessarily you know, that worldly or it, they're not that illuminated or anything about what's going on, tend to be more conservative than not. Um, do you find that among the young athletes in soccer? Obviously, these two guys are not like that, but uh, is there a difference at all, do you think, with the people you know, or are they pretty standard like jocks? Um, <laughs> that's a broad, I know it's a broad question. Everybody's yeah. different, but no, totally. I mean, I think one thing that people, you know, you don't really understand as a casual fan is how single-minded you have to be to be as successful as yeah. these guys are to become yeah. a professional athlete. And I think that, um, I think it's very, very hard to be a well-rounded individual and also be a successful professional athlete. And I think the guys who do it, I have the utmost respect for. It's amazing to me that you could have sort of that much, just like that much focus and that much, you know, ways to do it. Um, so I think that's just sort of general sports. I think it's very, people really underrate how focused athletes have, have to be. And that's kind of why they are so boring and they are so, you know, iodine and, um, they just don't say stuff that's all that interesting, all that much. Mm -hmm. Um, that said, I think that soccer specifically is to get a little cliched here is a very worldly game. I do think that, you know, a guy like McKinney, a guy like Adams who started in the U S have gone to Germany um, have traveled all around the world playing for the U.S. team, you know, have experienced teammates from all different parts of the world. Um, I think you, you know, 
you learn something there and you are a little bit more exposed just by your circumstances than, you know, maybe someone who grew up just playing basketball or just playing baseball or just playing football um, or even just playing golf. You know, I think golf is a pretty international sport as well, but it's, you know, if, if you're growing up on the, you know, amateur circuit in the U S like you're probably not seeing a ton of stuff, um, around the world and, and experiencing all that much. So I do think there's something about kind of the international nature of soccer, um, that it just, you just see a lot more than I think you would, would as a young player in other sports. Yeah, definitely. I mean, golf of course is its own animal because it's so expensive to play. So even if you are seeing people from around the world, you're just seeing other rich people. You're not you're not necessarily and I know right. soccer I know soccer's not exactly cheap, but once you get onto traveling teams and things like that, but yeah, I, I can definitely see uh, that being a little bit more progressive in certain ways. Hey, so one kind of funny thing when I um, started to try to learn about German soccer, you know, literally three weeks ago, just because there's nothing else on. It was funny to me that every single team, when I looked at flow charts or talked to people who knew it, they're like, oh, yeah, this team's fascist. This team is like radical leftists (laughs) talking about their fan base or their history. And I was like, wow, it's like I couldn't believe how political every single thing was. Um, But it made me curious, like, how do you know how these protests are going over uh, in Germany? Like, do the German fans care? I mean, is it is there punishment or, you know, aplomb or applause to be had uh, for these guys in the actual country of Germany? Um, I don't know too much about it. I mean, yeah. it does seem like, you know, their clubs came out and said and were supportive of them um, pretty vocally. I think there is, you know, support generally for the protests that are happening abroad. Um, I think, you know, most of the there are certainly some, you know, teams that are still fascist, but there's they're less and less fewer and fewer and sure. uh, yeah. certainly less vocal about it. Um and yeah, so I mean, I think from everything that I've read, they've been supported and encouraged. And, um, you know, I, I think some of that is empty words. And we'll see, see what happens going on from here. I mean, McKinney said that he's going to continue to do stuff like this. And so I think it'll be interesting to see, you know, what happens. Um, he, he talked specifically about not telling the club that he was going to wear the armband. Um, and it, it sounded like it was just something that he didn't even think about, you know, think that he should do because he didn't think that it was a political statement. Um, and he said after the fact, he said, you know, maybe I should I should have run that by the club. So it'll be interesting to see you know, sort of what happens this weekend and whether he wears an armband or, you know, whether he wears a shirt under it. I always wonder about those guys who wear the, you know, the statements under their shirts and they only take them off when they score. And it's like, well, what happens if you didn't score? You know? <laughs> um, I like so. the idea of like a teammate scoring and they just kind of run up and rip the shirt off. Yeah, <laughs> like, exactly. I, I don't know if I'm going to score, so I have to vicariously do this through you right now. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I think it'll be interesting to see sort of the next weekend. Um, it's always not easier but uh you know to do it as a surprise you can sort of explain it away and be like oh sorry i wasn't i didn't know i was supposed to run this by you you know whether that's true or not i think in mckinney's case it is but um you know i think it'll be interesting to see sort of what happens this weekend and also you know if if they grow it if more players do it um and you know where where it all goes from here yeah and that was gonna be my next question what's your instinct on that do you think this is i mean i personally thought We've seen a lot of street-type protests in the last four years, and they typically end after a day or two. This one in America has way more staying power. I, I, I couldn't believe it's still going and seems to be almost growing and getting bigger. Um, is it going to be the same, do you think, in Salt Lake? Are these protests going to amplify uh, this weekend and going forward? 
I wouldn't be surprised if they do. Yeah, I mean, this feels this feels different to your point um, in in a lot of ways, and you know, I think sort of the the three day nature of it, where it was you know McKinney and the Dorman guys on Saturday, and then uh, Thurm on Sunday, and then Adams on Monday. Like even just that sort of time span feels like something that was bigger than just a one day thing. And it was like, okay, I I saw how that how it was you know reacted to and I don't want to do it anymore. Um, I think also, you know, I think players are, players are frustrated. Uh, I think the European players have dealt with a ton of racism all the time constantly. And it, it has not been dealt with very well at all, frankly. Um, and I think they're frustrated. And I, I also think it's, it's kind of a function of players in professional sports, realizing how much power they have and trying to kind of assert themselves. And, you know, I think you sort of see that all along. I think it kind of started with, you know, like thinking back about LeBron and, and the heat posting the, uh, the image of them with hoodie wearing hoodies when Trayvon Martin was murdered and, you know, and then Kaepernick and you're kind of seeing like the athletes realize that they have power and they have these huge platforms. And I think feeling like they have a responsibility um, in, in some ways as well to take advantage of that. All right, Noah Davis, great stuff as always. Thank you, sir. Thanks for having me. Segment break. All right, it's time for Apocalypse Sports Trivia. First, last week's question was this. Vodang Fong was a colonel in the Army of the Republic of Vietnam who spent the entirety of the Vietnam War fighting against the Viet Cong and the NVA. After Saigon fell, he was placed in a re-education camp at Holang Son Province, where he died in 1976, a fact that one American friend who fought beside him wouldn't discover until the late 90s. What was Colonel Fong's nickname? Well, a number of people got that one, but the first one to do it was Dave underscore 52 on Twitter, who understood that uh, Vodang Fong's friend was Earl Woods, and Earl Woods... Um, admired him so much that he would name his son after him later, uh, and he would name the son with the nickname Tiger. So there you go. Vodang Fong was the namesake of Tiger Woods. And uh, again, congratulations to Dave underscore 52. With that, let us move to this week's question. On August 15th, 2012, one U.S. national team finally earned a victory at what venue? It's first in 11 tries dating back to 1972. If you know that answer, you can tweet it at me, Shane Ryan here, H-E-R-E, or you can email it to apocalypseports24 at gmail.com. Good luck. Segment break. Eric Nussbaum is the author of Stealing Home, Los Angeles, the Dodgers, and the Lives Caught in Between. It just came out in March of this year. Uh, He writes for Baseball Perspective and various other outlets, and you can find his newsletter at sportsstories.substack.com. And he's joining us now to talk about the brewing battle between the owners and players of Major League Baseball. Eric, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you for having me. So the first thing I want to get out of the way is something you wrote in an email to me, which is that we're here to talk about uh, the MLB labor situation, but what a completely bizarre uh, time to be talking about that. And Eric, I want to go to a tweet that I saw of yours from a couple days ago where you wrote, the line is that you're supposed to get more conservative as you age, but I just keep looking at the world and getting angrier and more radicalized. You work, you have kids, you uncover one ju- on injustice after another, like Russian nesting dolls. And I thought that was incredibly eloquent. Uh, so maybe we should start there and just acknowledge that uh, it's what a insane time we're in and what a weird time to talk about baseball. Yeah. And I think that um, 
I mean, look, things are really bad right now. Uh, not just not just COVID nineteen or not just decades of you know systemic racism and police brutality uh, coming to a head, but all of it put together. Um, so talking about sports, we're sports writers, does feel a little weird. Yeah. And now with that said, let's move right on to baseball. <laughs> no, but you know, what's interesting about this topic with the, um, the fight between the owners and the players is that it is political in a way. And obviously the stakes aren't as high as the things we're seeing out in the street, but, um, Maybe just to get us started, I've written a lot about it. You have, too. You wrote a great article on Baseball Prospectus that I'll link. But just the basics, Eric, we have a war between the owners and players where the in late March they agreed on a prorated salary, meaning if they play half the games, the players get 50% of their salary and so on and so forth. How has it developed since then and how have things changed as the owners raise these new kind of uh, these new things they want? So what's happened since then is that owners have – essentially said, we want to pay you less than that. Uh, the really simple version is that we owners, first of all, they've, some teams have stopped paying their minor leaguers, um, teams have cut minor league players and owners have claimed that because of the loss of, you know, in-person gate revenue, uh, that they're going to face coming back to playing empty stadiums, potentially they should have to play their, they shouldn't have to pay their players as much. And, um, players said, well, we made a deal after the pandemic started um, and owners are kind of laying on the like, well, it's the national pastime. If you really care about America, you're going to get back out on the field and play uh, the same sort of bullshit that doesn't really stand up to anything, but also works to get, you know, sports writers fired up and to get, to get fans on the side of, of owners who don't particularly care about them. Yeah, and then I, you know, the proposal that they did was was kind of ironic in a in a way to me because they sort of want to institute a progressive tax, and I'm talking about the owners here, where they want the more money you make, the more you're taxed to the point that I think it was over twenty million dollars. Every dollar you make is taxed at eighty percent. Um, so it functions near like a salary cap, uh, which is something that obviously the union has fought against for the players' union has fought against for a long time. But I also think it's funny because I'm sure a progressive tax like that would be a nightmare, something like their worst, the worst case scenario for these billionaire owners in real life. If the government ever, ever tried to do it to them. It that way. Yeah, it's true. I and mean, there's a lot of, you know, what's fair for owners, um, as you know, in the, what, there's baseball exists in this fake world, right? Where it's sort of like a board game for these, for these owners. And they want to create a set of rules that only kind of apply in their institution and within this insulated place. Uh, but when you start to like judge those rules by the values and morals that those owners uphold outside of this bubble, then they, they look insane. Absolutely insane. Yeah. And you know, my take on this is that uh, the players are in a pretty good position right now, but I want to ask you about the Scott Boris letter. Scott Boris is like this bogeyman of popular imagination where he's the evil guy who, you know, makes people who play a game, he gets them too much money, etc. I thought he nailed it. And, and in your article in Baseball Prospectus, it looked like you thought the same, that he's dead in the right. But can you describe that letter quickly and, uh, and, and what Boris, the point he was making? Sure. So Boris is kind of an interesting figure because, yeah, he's, I mean, he's this sort of bogeyman and he's extremely over the top in the way he talks about sports and salaries and players. And he's, um, 
kind of framed himself as this like great freedom fighting, you know, union progressive, which he's very much not like he's clearly out to get his own. Uh, yeah. And, you know, he initially said we need to get back on the field because it's a baseball sacred duty, uh, knowing that he's not going to get paid unless his players get paid. But then of course, once the terrible, um, major league baseball owner proposal came in to, to his guys, he sent them a letter basically saying it's not your job as major league baseball players to bail out owners. Uh, it's not the employee's job to cover the debt and we can get into debt afterwards, but cover the, the debt of, of their bosses. And it's a really fundamentally obvious logical thing that I think gets lost in the context of you know, how we talk about sports and sports e- economics. And, you know, the owners are either implicitly or in some cases explicitly uh, putting forth this argument that they're going to lose so much money that it's going to be damaging. Um, on the other hand, they will not open their books, and they also had a record revenue. I think it was $10.7 billion last year. How legitimate are their complaints? I mean, is this really something that they cannot uh, suffer through, like a, a down year like this? Are, are they really strapped, or, or how, how legitimate is that? Um, I don't think I would ever use the word suffer with an, the Major League Baseball owner. I mean, look at the world right now. It, suffering yeah. is not what Major League Baseball owners are doing. And it's very hard for me to – it's hard for me to generate much sympathy for Major League Baseball players, too, right now, for the most part. I mean, but come on. Like, Major League Baseball owners have, have no leg to stand on in terms of crying poor. They They have explicitly built the game around – TV revenue. So they get a lot of money, even if there's nobody in the stands, um, numbers that are like so big as to not seem real. And yeah. as you mentioned, they're completely unwilling to be transparent about any of their income and any of their, their books. So how can you believe somebody who won't, you know, tell you what, what's going on, you know, tell you to open their wallet and show you. Now, part of it to me seems like a huge part of the owner's PR strategy depends on targeting, quote unquote, the greedy millionaires of baseball and pushing forward this notion that it's the players who are greedy. And if only they would just take a small pay cut, they would have this gift of baseball would be going out to the greater world. And I, I remember that. Um, I think you're probably a little bit younger than me, Eric, but I, I do remember that argument from the, the 90s strike. And uh, I feel like it, it did have traction, like people were believing it. I tend to think that it's going to have less traction now. Buster only, I read an article in ESPN, disagrees with me. He thinks the strife is going to make people hate the players even more. What do you think, in our current climate, do you think it's a better or worse ploy for the owners to try to put this on the players? I think in our current climate, it's very obvious that we don't need baseball. Let's, let's put it that way first. There's so much going on in the world right now. People are distracted. People are people are worried about their lives right now. And yeah, I love baseball, but um, I think the idea that somebody's going to get worked up right now about, about of all things like Mike Trout not wanting to take a ninety percent pay cut. <clears throat> excuse me. Yeah, uh, that's it's silly. And and if you are predisposed to kind of feeling like the way only things people are going to feel um, and starting to hate players and hate baseball, you probably already didn't like them very much. You probably already didn't like baseball very much. I mean, the sport's not going to win new fans having, you know, a public labor spat in the middle of a pandemic and a societal breakdown uh, of which major league baseball has not commented on. 
officially. And they're not going to probably lose that many fans either. If yeah. I had to. Yeah. Yeah. And only's column was very much, uh, I think living in a, like a world of like the 1920s where baseball is all anybody cared about. And he's like making it seem like you said, like it's going to be this massive pushback and I'm with you. Like, I just think I, even big baseball fans are gonna be like, yeah, if we lose a year, we lose a year. Like these are extraordinary circumstances. Um, which makes me think the players have more, um, what you, like image leverage or PR leverage than they might otherwise have. Do you think if they hold solid and, and refuse to meet these concessions, are they in a good place to kind of force the owners to put up or shut up, I guess? Like, do they have the, the prime position right now? I don't know. You know, I think they might. Uh, they, they counter, they issued a counter proposal a couple of days ago. I honestly, I haven't really looked at it that closely, mm-hmm. but I, it seems like if their union uh, holds strong and if they, are kind of resolute they have the upper hand but i think the players association has sort of lost some of its power and become a little bit more afraid in the last decade or so so i'm, I'm curious how that's going to go interesting now i wanted to kind of bring your book in a little bit um you wrote the book yeah, st- self-promoted in this <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. this is this is an obligation eric threatened me if i didn't bring it up no uh so your book stealing home it's about you know how they basically uprooted a, a ton of people in chavez ravine to build dodger stadium and again we're talking about something that is much higher stakes than a uh than simply you know our current situation with a few players losing some money uh but the broader themes are there this idea of greed on the side of the owners and the fact that the ability to make tons of money kind of pushes aside human concerns. Uh, am I stretching too much for that comparison or is there a through line there? I think there's a through line when it comes to injustice in the world. I mean, the book is really about kind of power and, um, in the, in the book, in the book, in real life, we had in LA three communities, three small communities. We now call it Chavez Ravine, um, up in the Hills, just outside of downtown LA. Uh, and in the late forties, city of LA decided that those communities should be dismantled to make way for public housing. Uh, and so the book chronicles, you know, that battle and what happened when sort of red scare politics came in and powerful real estate developers and politicians kind of used fear mongering to, to cancel the housing project, effectively evicting, you know, more than a thousand families for nothing. And mm-hmm. ultimately they sold the land to the Dodgers. And it's really a story about, you know, the built-in biases, prejudices, brokenness of our system and how powerful people can push around little people. Um, and then the fact that sports is totally inseparable from that. And if you're a sports fan, I think it's important to keep that in mind and be as critical of the, of the league itself and of the team and its place in society as you might be of the team and who it signs in the offseason. Yeah, I think that's well put. And talking about how they sell it, I wanted to just read the line from your uh, baseball perspectives piece that I really liked. You said MLB owners are hacking away at the sports own institutions, then blaming everybody else for the wreckage. Meanwhile, they are still selling us nostalgia, the same old national pastime, the same old empty patriotic gestures as if the business of baseball was, in fact, accessible, humane, and democratic. Uh, and clearly, you believe, and I believe, that it's it's not, none of those things. Um, but tell, talk to me a little bit about what you meant there and how nostalgia kind of plays into the the mythos of baseball and maybe how it erases some of the, uh, the, the worst things that they do. 
Sure. I mean, look, so much about baseball is built on that idea of like fathers and sons and peanuts and cracker jacks and, you know, the sound of the crack of the bat and the smell of fresh cut grass and this sort of whole Ken Burns sensory experience. Although to be fair, Ken Burns gets into a lot of the problems with that nostalgia in his documentary, but like the, the idea is always that like baseball has this sort of specialness to it. And, you know, it's, I guess not unlike America in that way, uh, where that specialness is above criticism and that specialness exists on a plane that is somehow like spiritual or mystical, but it's really just a, marketing tactic ultimately like the idea of baseball uh as a national pastime was sort of like willed into existence by businessmen in the late 1800s and writers and you know profiteers i guess you could call them you know people who saw potential in it and built a sport and built an amazing sport and you know this big part of our country but they had a you know vested interest in making money off of it like that has never changed. Uh, the idea that it's all for the sake of this greater good and this higher power, like the James Earl Jones speech, uh, and feel the dreams is it's, a, it's, it's hokey to me. Yeah. Agreed. And as a last question, Eric, um, we've already seen articles in places like the Atlanta journal constitution where certain journalists, for some reason, they tend to be the older ones. I don't know why that is. But they really kind of get suckered into this narrative about the greedy players, and they seem to be carrying water for the owners. You know, they're not being paid by the owners. Uh, it doesn't quite make sense to me why they are so stuck in that pattern. Uh, what is it that makes that story so tempting to write, and why is it so inevitable that we're going to have to read it in a bunch of different places? I mean, owners offer access, first of all, and, you know, it, there's always the question of like how you can get stuff and who's going to give you better stuff and the politics of what you cover in terms of your sources. I mean, I don't know what Buster only or what any other journalist is doing in that front. Uh, there's also just people think differently about things. You know, I have a certain belief about baseball and somebody might see it differently and I'd say they were wrong, but that's still how they see it. Yeah. All right, Eric, thank you. That was really great. And I really appreciate you, uh, you joining me. Hey, thanks for having me. This is a good conversation. Segment break. All right. Thank you very much, Eric Nussbaum. That was great. Thank you also to Noah Davis. Also great. Everything is so great. I uh, hope you guys had a great time. Uh, again, episode number 11, Apocalypse Sports Radio. You can always find this on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, all the usual suspects. Uh, if you liked it, leave a review maybe on iTunes. That's always nice. Tell a friend, spread the word, and of course... Uh, if you're interested in more of this kind of content, uh, you can check some of the writing I do at apocalypsesports.net or uh, subscribe for $3 a month at patreon.com apocalypse sports. Have a wonderful day. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.